This podcast is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about us and to explore Rand's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries. I'm, for those who haven't met me, I'm Jim Thompson. I'm the president of, uh, of Rand. I want to welcome everyone here. I want to introduce the speaker, Jack Riley. Uh, Jack has had a career at RAND and in the U.S. government in the Department of Justice. Uh, he was, he's, he's, that was sandwiched between two parts of his RAND career. He has a Ph.D. from the RAND Graduate School, uh, and uh, he's been working here in California and in Pittsburgh for the last 12 years, Jack? Ten years. It seems like, well, that's not too much, you know. If I'd said 20, you might have. Um, and uh, and um, uh, he was the head of our public safety and justice program, the deputy head of our Division of Infrastructure, Safety, and Environment, and he is the deputy head of the National Security Research Division. And so I'm pleased to ask Jack to come up and tell us about this, uh, this study. Thank you very much, Jim, and thank you to all our guests who are here tonight that are interested in the topic of Mexico. Um, I really have two things that I want to cover here tonight uh, in the 20 or so minutes that uh, I have to speak. Um, first, I want to tell you briefly about the report or the, uh, the book that my colleagues uh, Agnes Schaefer and Ben Bainey wrote uh, on the security situation in Mexico. Uh, I want to do this because I assume most of you have not had the chance to read it yet. And second, I want to talk about uh, a few conversations and uh, communications that this report has has sparked uh, with a variety of different constituencies and, and correspondents. And in many ways, if this is possible, the reactions to the report are even more interesting than the report itself. Um, I have written broadly on a variety of different topics here in my career at RAND. Um, and I can say, I think, with, with uh, some emphasis that the only work that I've been involved with that has uh, sparked and provoked more commentary and more correspondence with the, the variety of different audiences out there is the work that we did on police community relations and racial profiling. Um, so. Clearly, this report has, has hit a note and um, is beginning to register with, uh, with people. So uh, let me begin. It was about a year ago that Agnes and Ben and I volunteered to take on this project uh, to look at the security situation in Mexico. Each one of us, I think, had slightly different motivations for being involved. None of us are specialists in Mexico, um, although... Uh, Ben is uh, certainly proficient in Spanish and was able to do uh, the, the research in the original language. Um, ben had also been doing some important work in Iraq uh, on insurgent financing, and um, his firsthand observations in Iraq of how the insurgents were financing their activities, I think, helped get him interested in uh, a more systematic look at organized crime and related issues that might be affecting uh, uh, Mexico. Agnes is a political scientist, and uh, she was interested in returning to traditional political science topics. And myself, I have been involved in uh, 
many different security sector reform projects, Afghanistan, Liberia, Palestine, and a few other places. So I've, I've had the opportunity to travel to some of the world's uh, global glamour spots. And in my experience from that work, uh, it is clear that a country that is unable to provide domestic security for its population after conflict is doomed to a very long and very slow path to recovery. And with respect to Mexico, I was curious about how the issues would play out in a situation where the country wasn't recovering from conflict, but where the security institutions were under pressure that is every bit as, uh, as harsh as the pressure that post-conflict societies are under. So I won't keep you in suspense any longer because I can tell you're eager to hear the findings. Uh, I reduced them to four bullet points. Um, that doesn't mean that that's the end of the talk, but it's uh, where we are in the talk. The first is that Mexico lacks a roadmap with which to guide the operation and reform of its security institutions. The second is that there's a significant gap between the capabilities of the federal, on the one hand, and the state and local, on the other hand, security organizations uh, in Mexico. The third is that most of the assistance that the U.S. provides to Mexico is based on technology and equipment rather than on institution building uh, and personnel support. And fourth, most of the, the assistance that the U.S. provides is narrowly construed to pursue direct U.S. interests, such as drug control, and does relatively little to address the corrosive effects that crime and other associated ills are having on Mexican society. So let me consider each of these points briefly. Um, just to fill in uh, some of the, the questions that this might raise. The violent crime rate in Mexico is high, although I think it's important to keep the scale in perspective. The latest reliable figures from 2004 that come from the UN put the Mexican homicide rate at about 14 per 100,000 residents, uh, so in the, uh, a country of uh, probably around 100 million back then, you're looking at a significant number of, of violent crimes. I use homicide as the comparison benchmark because it, uh, among the violent crimes, is the one that is the easiest to count. Um, it's the most visible to authorities, unlike crimes like assault and um, kidnapping and so forth, which may never actually be reported um, or wait, where you may never um, know that there's a victim. In contrast, for the U.S., uh, the homicide rate, the peak, was around 10 per 100,000 in the 1990s late 1980s, early 1990s. If any of you recall, uh, in the middle of the crack epidemic, this country's concern uh, about a homicide rate of 10 per 100,000, uh, you know that the Mexican rate in 2004, which was 14, is pretty high. Of course, the U.S. rate has dropped since then, and the Mexican rate has undoubtedly increased. So in short, there's a problem there, um, but even just looking at the U.S. example, uh, it's a problem that other societies have dealt with. President Calderon has tried to ameliorate these issues by providing resources, um, particularly at the federal level, against a specific set of issues with a lot of the focus being on drug trafficking. But this is a problem that we've seen in Afghanistan, Liberia, Iraq, and many other places. 
and that is that the strategy needs to reinforce all of the levers in the security sector, from the police and law enforcement to the prosecutors and the courts, uh, through on down to the prisons and the jails uh, that house the convicted offenders. There is no shortage of these kinds of institutions in Mexico, and indeed Mexico is squarely within international norms in terms of the provision of these services uh, per capita. Uh, in fact, uh, if I'm recalling correctly, uh, they actually have more police per capita than, for example, the United States does. The problem is the functioning of these institutions, and the specter of the judicial system is just not a credible deterrent when the criminals know that the police won't arrest, the courts won't prosecute, and the jails won't hold. This relates to the gap between federal and state, lo federal and, state and local capabilities. Uh, for purposes of controlling corruption, President Calderon has been increasingly reliant on uh, federal forces, and in particular federal armed forces as opposed to federal law enforcement forces to help combat the national ailments, particularly drug trafficking. But federal forces can't always accomplish what state and local forces uh, and authorities can uh, because state and local authorities may be better positioned to maneuver within the community uh, as insiders to gain trust of needed supporters, such as informants and so forth. I mentioned that most of the assistance that the U.S. provides to Mexico is in the form of equipment and technology, and most of the overall aid when we looked at the resource tracking uh, to Mexico was in one of these two uh, categories. While we don't deny that there is a need for this kind of assistance to Mexico, it does tend to overlook the broader problem of getting Mexican institutions to function more effectively. More could be provided to support the training, structuring, and management of Mexican security services in a way that would yield more positive results. Which brings me to the last of our findings uh, and the near midpoint of my talk, namely that the U.S. aid is given in pursuit of U.S. objectives. Now, this probably sounds axiomatic uh, to anybody in the room, that aid is given to bolster the objectives of the giver. So most of our bilateral assistance to Mexico is given to support counter-narcotics, border control, human trafficking, and organized crime initiatives with the focus on results for the United States. Those are worthy objectives, but I think in many important respects, they are dwarfed by the problem of violent crime in Mexico. So part of our argument in the analysis is that U.S. assistance needs to focus more on helping Mexico solve Mexican problems. The problems of crime and violence stand to overwhelm Mexican institutions, which in turn means that Mexican institutions may be unable to help the United States address problems that the United States cares about. So that's the report in a nutshell. Uh, let me now turn to some of the reactions and the, uh, the issues that have arisen since. I would say there have been three general reactions to the, the report. The first is, and I'm paraphrasing from some of the, uh, the email correspondence and blog activity that I've read, would be, since most of the violence is related to the drug trade, isn't your book, in effect, an argument for legalization of drugs in the United States? To which I typically respond, 
what are you smoking? <laughs> there are severe flaws in the logic of this argument. You have to remember that there are multiple different drugs that are manufactured in or trafficked through Mexico. Marijuana, cocaine, methamphetamine, and heroin. And I know of no serious analyst who would argue for the legalization or the decriminalization of any of those drugs other than marijuana. Moreover, it isn't clear how the legalization or decriminalization of drugs here in the United States would affect drug trafficking and drug marketing activity in Mexico. For each drug, there's roughly a factor of 10 markup between the farm gate, and I know there are no methamphetamine farms, and the intermediate or the wholesale price uh, of the drug in Mexico. So when a drug uh, moves in its raw state from uh, a country like Colombia as coca leaf or coca paste, and it makes it to Mexico, there's roughly a, a factor of 10 markup in the price by the time it gets to Mexico. There's another factor of 10 markup uh, before the drug hits the street retail uh, location in the United States. So by the time the drug makes it from the farm or from the lab uh, where it's produced uh, to the United States, the price has increased uh, by roughly a factor of 100. To the extent that legalization would actually lower U.S. retail prices, take the profit out of drug trafficking, if you will, it would tend to only act on prices at the retail level, and it would have very little effect on prices at the intermediate level, and those are the ones that matter in Mexico. Why? Because there would still be the risk of arrest, prosecution, and so forth for being involved in cocaine or heroin trafficking. Regardless, legalization or decriminalization would do less to affect the farm gate and transit prices because of the laws and regulations would not be directly affecting these markets. You're not taking any of the risk out of the process of trafficking the drugs in Mexico, and it's simply not clear that legalization would do anything uh, to ameliorate this problem. Second, some correspondents have criticized our report uh, for ignoring the issue of the impact that Mexican violence has had on violence in the United States, to which we respond, uh, we're not ignoring it. It doesn't really exist, at least the way the proponents of this theory uh, have put it forward. It is undeniable that some of the crime in Mexico is extraordinarily gruesome. Criminals have chopped off their victims' heads, put them in coolers, and delivered them to police stations. They have rolled the severed heads of their opponents and their foes across the dance floors of discos. Uh, pardon the pun, but these are headline-grabbing crimes, uh, both in Mexico and the United States. Proponents of the border spillover argument make three main arguments. The first is that brazen Mexican bandits are simply pursuing their foes into the U.S., and it's Mexicans that are conducting these crimes in the United States. The second is that Mexican drug lords are contracting with U.S. street gangs and other U.S.-based criminals to do the dirty work for them in the U.S. And the third is simply that lawlessness in Mexico encourages lawlessness in border communities in the United States. But when you look at the data, the numbers tell a different story. There is no evidence of a worsening crime trend, uh, violent or otherwise, in U.S. border states 
or in states that have large expatriate Mexican populations. Overall, whether you consider victimizations, arrests, or crimes reported to the police, violent crime is held within roughly the same range in the United States since 2002. Indeed, in 2008, the Uniform Crime Report given by the FBI indicated that there was a 2.5% crime decline nationally in terms of violent crime, 3.4% here in the Western United States. The pattern most definitely varies by city, uh, with Phoenix and San Diego down, and Brownsville, El Paso, and Laredo up slightly. But in short, there is no clear overall trend, and there certainly is no explosion in violence in the U.S. that is related to Mexican activities. And if you think about it, this makes sense. What incentives do Mexican gangsters have to take on the U.S. criminal justice system? They can accomplish what they need by subverting the far smaller and far weaker Mexican criminal justice system. Why risk being caught in the United States where the odds of conviction are high and the ability to bribe your way out of jail is relatively low? They may have foes that hide out here, and there are undoubtedly uh, been violent crimes here in the U.S. that are related to Mexican drug trafficking. But this is relatively individual-level activity, and I think it's the, um, it's the vividness of some of the crimes and the, um, the, uh, the uh, overall impression that it creates um, and the larger picture when you look at evidence rather than anecdote, is really one that shows uh, one of relatively little impact in the U.S. of violent crime trends in Mexico. Finally, the third reaction to the report is, given the problems in Mexico, shouldn't we just shut down the border? Um, we could keep drugs and potential terrorists out. Um, here I'm tempted to quip that the economic crisis and swine flu may have given us a head start on those two things, um, but... People are serious about this uh, as um, a set of policy options that needs to be looked into, and um, so I'm going to talk about it a little bit here. The reality is there is no benefit to closing down the border with Mexico. Uh, last year, we exported over $150 billion worth of goods to Mexico. According to the methods used by the Commerce Department, the Department of Agriculture, and the U.S. Census, this translated into roughly 1.5 million jobs here in the U.S. that are connected to exports to Mexican markets. Moreover, the costs of attempting to seal the borders would be astronomically high. Reflect just briefly, for example, on the experience at the Canadian and Mexican borders after 9-11, uh, which is about as close to sealing the border as I think we've ever come in this country. Trucks lined up for 20 miles uh, outside of Windsor trying to get into Detroit, and similar scenarios played out at both the northern and the southern borders. Uh, auto manufacturers, drug manufacturers, service providers, and a whole variety of other uh, uh, organizations ran short of critical inputs uh, because they had come to rely on the free movement of goods over our borders uh, for their economic livelihood. In short, taken literally, the idea of closing down the border is simply not credible or serious. Uh, most people, however, I think, interpret the call to close the borders to mean that we should more rigorously inspect cargo and people before they enter the United States in an effort to keep contraband out. 
This is a laudable sentiment, but it is one that is difficult to implement in a very practical way. As I testified before Congress in 2007, the technology does not exist that would allow us to effectively, efficiently, and inexpensively screen or search every truck, passenger car, rail car, and person entering in the United States from Mexico. So there you have it, the main reactions to uh, and the basic findings of our report. Let me conclude on a slightly optimistic note uh, that we do highlight in the report, and that is the tide of crime and violence uh, in Mexico has created really an almost unparalleled opportunity for cooperation between our two countries. U.S. policymakers are interested in providing the assistance to help ensure that the U.S. can achieve uh, its goals in Mexico and with Mexico, and Mexican policymakers are increasingly willing to accept U.S. assistance because of the magnitude of the problem. There is an alignment of incentives that has not been so previously clear, at least in, in my reading of the history. And many of the people that we spoke to when writing our report were aware of the alignment of incentives and opportunities, and we're anxious to capitalize on it. Thank you. We have uh, microphones for people who have questions. Thank you. Could you tell me um, what was the most surprising result that you came across in your research? Uh, I personally, uh, having a long, sordid involvement with drug and crime issues, um, wasn't surprised by a lot of the findings in that area, except for one, and that was, I think, going into doing the analysis, I was convinced, uh, uh, I think I believed the hype that the problems in Mexico were really spilling over into the U.S., and I was most surprised not to find the evidence of that. But it's pretty clear. We have a question over here. The center of gravity, it seems, uh, from what we have, we have out here and what you were just saying, seems to be fortifying uh, the institutions of the criminal justice system inside of Mexico, um, imp improving what a military strategist might call the force employment. My, my question is, what precedents are there uh, in, in situations where foreign aid or just domestically that these sorts of institutions have been fortified and how, if not, or if there are examples you could point to, what are the specific measures you see taken that, that could be taken in Mexico that would do these things? Probably one of the more successful uh, that we've had in, in uh, helping another country uh, comes from the 1970s when the U.S. provided significant sustained assistance to Italy uh, to help combat the mob. And... Um, we provided a lot of technical assistance, financial assistance, and otherwise to help set up specialized courts, prevent vict uh, protect victims and witnesses, um, and uh, establish the uh, intelligence and law enforcement programs that were, that were necessary. Um, the harder thing, I think, to combat uh, in the Mexico case, and here I, I search my memory, but I cannot find a successful example, is combating the corruption which is an enormous problem for Mexican law enforcement institutions because uh, the side jobs of uh, drug trafficking or protecting cartel members can often pay uh, a multiple of 10 or more of the salary that they're provided. Um, 
that said, uh, you know, I think it's been a while since we have systematically uh, engaged uh, in an attempt to combat corruption uh, of the scale that it is in the Mexican Armed Forces, and I think there are some things that we could do uh, that would help uh, address some of those problems. So um, the main takeaway for me in, in answering your question would be it's a doable, but it's going to be a pretty long-term process, and uh, we shouldn't get sidetracked by uh, expectations for short-term, uh, short-term results. One question to your right. Under the rubric that uh, democracies never go to war with each other, historically this is true, uh, we do want to keep a democracy on our southern border. Uh, I'm wondering about uh, taking a leaf from Osama bin Laden's uh, book uh, uh, with a fairly low expenditure of money for education. He's been able to develop a hell of an ethnic, uh, <laughs> ethnic pressure uh, to uh, accomplish uh, what he feels are his goals. Is there any chance that we could do this by perhaps uh, funding NGOs or something to uh, do something? Because the people in Mexico are hungry for education. Um, I think until the official institutions, um, particularly the institutions of governance and state responsibility and, and authority uh, are stabilized, that, uh, that everything else is secondary. So I, I think the, the proper focus at this point is on shoring up the institutions that are involved in uh, the day-to-day battles. Question of me. Yeah. Hi. Um, I can speak for myself, but maybe for others, that when, as the news started to cover this um, issue more and more, I found it kind of surprising. Like, I didn't, I didn't know where this was coming from, and it seemed like all of a sudden that Mexico was, like, on fire. And so I'm wondering what are the circumstances of the environmental changes or um, governmental that uh, led to this happening all of a sudden? Or if it didn't happen all of a sudden, why are we only now hearing about it? Um, there, there, it there's no question that there has been a dramatic and um, substantial increase in violent crime in Mexico itself. Um, it is very difficult to get your hands on, uh, on uh, up-to-date figures, but uh, by most accountings, uh, violent crime, for example, has more than doubled uh, between 2007 and 2009. There are lots of speculation about you know, why this is happening, the, the friction between various drug trafficking syn- syndicates and so forth. Um, so the the dramatic increase in the activity alone, I think, is enough to to uh, explain why Mexico has ended up on the front pages. But the uh, a number of the crimes uh, have been particularly gruesome uh, in nature, and that has really helped attract attention. But I think more importantly, uh, a lot of the crime now attacks institutions in Mexico. Uh, thousands of police officers and armed forces have been killed uh, in Mexico uh, as part of their trafficking, combating duties, and and other law enforcement responsibilities. The church, the Catholic church, has been attacked. Priests, nuns, um, 
with, uh, I presume, no real stake in drug trafficking, um, have, uh, have been killed uh, in alarming numbers. Journalists uh, and the media um, have in many states in Mexico been uh, intimidated out of reporting on the problems. So it's, it's a combination, I think, of those three factors, the strong increase the, the gruesomeness and the heinousness of some of the crimes uh, and the fact that they, uh, the people involved in the criminal activity seem to be willing to turn their violence on state institutions. Yes, thank you. If, uh, you will find my questions and comments particularly made since I'm the Consul General of Mexico. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, oh, boy. Oh, boy. <laughs> and... And I want you to allow me to comment on a couple of sure. things. First of all, I want to thank you and invite you from now to to do this presentation in in one or more institutions in Mexico because I believe it will be a, a lot of help, not only for the policy making in the United States towards its neighbor in, on, on the south in the matter, but also for us. And so I will be more than happy and to, to work on having this book as much as we, as we can read it and if we can translate it in Mexico. It's uh, very important. And secondly, the institution and the Iran Corporation for taking uh, this serious look at something that is, of course, a regional concern. And that's the thing I admire most, the point of view that is looking at the problem, of course, towards the specific uh, situation in Mexico, but as a regional issue. And that is uh, very remarkable. I just wanted to, to offer you and ask you if in the, this dysfunctionality, to say the word, of the institutions in Mexico, did you took a look in the matter of centralism? My personal view on different matters is that the weakness and the lack of uh, functional institutions at the state and local is because of a long story of centralism in Mexico. <laughs> Suddenly we're asking the municipal and state corporations to act like if for years they will be in there in the cap capacity as some other federations. We call ourselves a federation, but... It's uh, difficult. So as a key element to, to redesign those institutions, maybe we need to take a look on, on the full structure of our government. That's one hint. And the other, your opinion on the performance of the military so far. Uh, that uh, will be the two questions. And, and just to close up, please, uh, please let us know how can we get you uh, to Mexico and spread the word about this wonderful <laughs> You see, I'm, I wasn't that in the defense line. <laughs> Thank you. Um, the issue of centralism uh, is a good one. I can't say that we uh, addressed it directly, but um, certainly a recurring theme throughout our work uh, was the weakness of state and local uh, institutions relative to the, the central power. Um, there is a, an example of one, um, one USAID-funded uh, effort to bolster the courts in southern Mexico. I forget the state. Um, and uh, 
it hasn't been formally evaluated, but the indications are um, very good uh, in terms of its impact on helping uh, corral the, uh, the crime problems in that particular um, jurisdiction within the state. And it's an example of where the aid was delivered directly to the state level, um, I believe, with the permission of the, the federal government. But it sort of, it, the, the point is, is it bypassed the usual federal level bureaucracy that you would find so that, that the assistance could be targeted directly to uh, um, the state and local level. Uh, you know, on the military front, um, I think the, the effort of the, the federal troops has been heroic. Um, ultimately, I think it's doomed to being futile um, because this is simply not a problem that you can control um, through, the, uh, through the use of, of troops uh, or law enforcement. Um, I think there are, uh, there are strategies that the, uh, the feds can be called upon to, um, to assist with that it's not clear to me that they're being utilized in this way. For example, um, they, they seem to be mostly used as a force to help address hot spots, provide protection, uh, engage in some of the more uh, complicated uh, trafficking and, um, and uh, corruption cases and so forth, but they don't seem to uh, be heavily involved in providing much assistance to state and local authorities um, and you know, sort of working as a force multiplier. Um, some analysis that, frankly, I think needs to be done, um, and this is certainly something we would love to do, is, you know, can you do things with the pay of federal uh, officers and federal troops that would help reduce the temptation to become involved in corruption? But in, in summary, I would say there's no question that corruption is much less of a problem with the federal, at the federal level. Uh, and and the armed forces in particular compared to the federal police and certainly to the state and local police. It seems to be... If they don't hand you the microphone, I can't call on you, Jim. (laughs) Those are the rules. I'm going to fudge a bit here and and ask uh, a question that has two parts. Um, Given the... uh, the circumstances, what we have here is a marketing dilemma. Uh, we have, in the context of a, um, a continuum of the marketing process, the end of that process is about huge sums of money. Now, I haven't heard anything uh, in the last uh, 40 minutes or so about following the money. How can we, at the end of the cycle, start to seize significant quantities of cash before they work their way back into the system? And the last part is, as far as the United States is concerned, what is our end game here? Well, I'll answer the second question first. That our end game historically has been um, trying to control the flow of uh, narcotics and uh, other contraband over the border, um, manage the illegal immigration and the human trafficking problems and so forth. And what I hope I've made clear here is not only is that insufficient um, because uh, that doesn't provide sufficient support to the Mexican institutions that have to help us 
with those objectives. Um, but if that remains our objective or our end game, we're, I think, passing up a historic opportunity um, to deepen the collaboration and the relationship with Mexico in a way that um, you know, simply hasn't happened in the past. On the, uh, the uh, money laundering and the, the financial trafficking uh, front, uh, you, know, you raise an interesting question, and uh, I wish Ben were here uh, because he's the guy that looked at the illicit finance networks in, in Iraq, and I suspect that he would have uh, more that he uh, can or uh, would say uh, on the topic. Um, I know from my experience in, uh, in other contexts and other kinds of crime, um, uh, and uh, a look that I took at this a long time ago in Colombia, that that kind of uh, asset forfeiture and, and focus on the financial uh, rewards associated with drug trafficking can be effective, um, and it certainly should be part of our strategy, but I, I must confess I can't say too much about what its role is in our current strategy. Well, well, you may have answered with part of what I was going to ask with this, with this last question, but I, 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 I don't have a good sense of what the overall appraisal of the problem is, the situation assessment of the Mexican authorities and what the strategy is that is, that is being pursued. You said you, you at the beginning that Mexico doesn't have a overall concept, but they must have something, or at least a concept is apparent in the activities. So what is, what is, the, what is the appraisal of the, the problem, in its, in, uh, and then how, what, how are they trying to fix that problem? Um, President Calderon's primary approach has been to, to uh, push federal resources uh, into combating the, the drug trafficking uh, and the associated problems with violence. So he's moved uh, both federal law enforcement um, and uh, uh, federal armed forces um, engage them very heavily uh, in domestic security responsibilities. Um, at the, the state and local level, and we go into this in, in more detail in the report, there's uh, um, not only greater numbers uh, in terms of law enforcement, uh, the combined total of state and local law enforcement is larger than the total of uh, federal law enforcement. But unfortunately, they're very weak and corrupt organizations. And um, it was only, uh, I believe, around two weeks after we released the report that uh, the Mexican government uh, had issued its first, uh, effectively, domestic security strategy. And the domestic security strategy, um, I think, it's fair to say, focuses on um, the, the use of federal resources to combat the, to, to basically try to stem the tide of violence. And so um, the, the emphasis on deeper and more sustained institutional reforms and the strategy or the, the, uh, the plan to direct resources to um, controlling corruption and to uh, boosting the performance of state and local law enforcement organizations just isn't there yet. One question over here. In, in regards to the, just the, very, the last question, uh, just my question is similar to that. Um, 
I have heard that the, in terms of setting the expectation at the very highest level, even in Mexico, the objective is not really eradication, that even they understand that their at least near-term objective is to uh, break, the, break the big bad guys into smaller bad guys, so its problem is more manageable. And also, I wonder if you could comment on, I think there was a report, but the problem seems to be really acute in terms of the challenge, direct frontal challenge to the state authority. And the Office of uh, Joint Chief of Staff or some su- other such Joint Forces level, Command. Joint Forces, yeah. In February, I think they declared that there's two countries on the verge of collapse. One is Pakistan, one is Mexico. I wonder if you could comment about that. Um, some of the uh, – I see how to put this. With respect to the situation in Mexico, in some ways we're not seeing anything that's really unique. Uh, we experienced a very similar situation in Colombia uh, in the, the early and mid-1980s, stretching on into the 1990s. And um, the, the basic strategy that the Colombians pursued, um, it was multi-front. They did direct engagement. Uh, they had the additional complication of some potential synergy between the, uh, the traffickers and, and the guerrillas uh, from the various organizations that were opposed uh, to the state. Um, ultimately, what led to the breakthrough uh, in Colombia um, was uh, the collapse of the, the largest single cartel or trafficking organization because law enforcement got to him and it broke the trafficking up into to smaller organizations that managed to, to find stasis and, and not um, uh, commit open acts of bloodshed uh, on the streets, uh, at least to the degree that they used to. But another very important factor uh, in quelling the violence in Colombia was the Colombians finally uh, decided that they would extradite to the United States some of the leading traffickers. And so when U.S. forces or U.S. resources were used in the hunt for some of these guys and they were caught, uh, they were extradited to the United States where they faced a a much higher likelihood of of serving a substantial um, prison sentence. Measuring the impact uh, of those two different things is very difficult to do. Um, And I don't wish to imply that, you know, it was a linear path. Um, Those are the kinds of um, elements of a strategy that we need to see put in place in Mexico. Figure out what your objective is, and I assume that the the objective in Mexico is twofold. Uh, Reduce the violence associated with the gangs and and the cartels, um, and uh, increase the public's confidence in security institutions in Mexico. Reduce the concerns that uh, average citizens have about violence in their communities. And once you settle on those as objectives, I'm very confident that you can design an approach uh, that will get you there. I mean, you know, we, we, for example, were able to do that in a very, um, a very small context in a neighborhood in East L.A. that was uh, undergoing a, a very severe gun crime uh, epidemic. There are ways this kind of thing can be done. Um, with respect to... Uh, <clears throat> to Mexico and Pakistan and, and the, uh, 
the failed state um, uh, comment that was in the, the Joe uh, I forget what that acronym stands for, the Joint Operating Environment, maybe? can't remember. Anyway, we had Vice Admiral Harward here uh, a few weeks ago, who's the Deputy Commander uh, of the Joint Forces Command. And uh, that, that question came up in the conversation. And um, without uh, over-characterizing uh, his point, um, I, think, um, I think he was a little surprised uh, at the the nature of the comment and how sharply it came out, both in the Joe uh, and uh, the amount of attention that it attracted. Um, I personally, you know, I don't, I don't view Mexico as a, a failed or a failing state, and um, I think it's a little harsh to, to put it on the same plane that Pakistan is in, uh, given the, the substantial challenges that that state. Uh, uh, faces, but you know there are probably people that are better capable of making the argument than I am. Question on your left. Tonight we've been discussing the in, primarily internal activities within a sovereign state in Mexico. I'm curious to know if you know, if you can answer, what do the institutions, people, or government of Mexico wish the United States to do, if anything, to assist or involved in their internal affairs. And since we are fortunate and honored tonight to be in attendance with the, the Honorable uh, Consul General, I'd be curious as to your opinion, but also as to his opinion, as to what the Mexicans would like Americans to do, if anything. All right. Well, I'll answer first, and then you can uh, rebut or, uh, or agree. Um, we, uh, as part of this work, um, interviewed uh, probably close to 200 people uh, in both the U.S. and uh, Mexican governments. Um, and the, uh, the near unanimous response was, we're ready. We're ready for some assistance. Um, there's a willingness, at least uh, among the people that we spoke to uh, uh, for the report, to um, open up to an unprecedented level of cooperation. I mean, there are going to be some speed bumps. Uh, there are going to be some difficult issues to, uh, to work out. You know, whether uh, uh, U.S. Uh, personnel that are down there assisting can carry firearms and uh, extradition of uh, Mexicans to the United States for certain kinds of violent crimes and, um, and things like that. But um, we didn't encounter a person who uh, was willing to continue on the same path uh, of cooperation. Um, and I think uh, a lot of the enthusiasm and the, um, the willingness to consider new methods is really embodied in the Merida Initiative, and in particular the way that it's, it's starting to be uh, recast uh, in a way that will really deepen cooperation. I'm sorry. <laughs> Well, I'll try to, to add, uh, sorry. Of course, there are some kind of a more practical or, or immediate type of actions that we have been uh, asking for, and some of them are pretty well known among you, like the so-called Merida Initiative. That is pretty much on the path of technical assistance and some investment, you know, spending of the U.S. in helping Mexico to kind of a uh, be more stronger 
in order to, to give the fight. But that's still pretty much in the pragmatic level. Along with that, we are asking for more <laughs> control and to lower the drug consumption in this country because that there is a, a magnet on the matter. And, of course, it has been already said here, the firearm controls, and th those that are going southbound, and, of course, the money, and the money control once the cycle is up to, to the end. But there is, and this is pretty much, of course, part of the Mexicans, Mexico's point of view, but uh, this is also my personal view, and is that cooperation towards this issue should have a, a broader scope, like in education and institutional development. Again, if we don't get stronger municipalities in all the senses, their fiscal structure, their administrative structure, salaries structure, the capacity of the human resource working for governments, to get short to there, we don't have one of the main weaknesses of our municipal institution is that we don't have re-election. So it's like every three buying for some, can you imagine drug lords, buying every three years a different mayor in these small towns here and there. Situations like that. So we need a full, deep uh, situation and cooperation, you know, NGOs and institutions working with the cooperation money that is available from the United States should be also aimed not too much into the specific firearms and patrols and everything, but also into this development. And last but not least, we are also calling for a more integral vision of the management of the border. It's, uh, you know, there's also trade, immigration, and some other things. And we just uh, use a, a broad uh, uh, principle uh, but it tells you a lot of what is the sake of these two countries. We call it shared responsibility. And we need to really uh, not uh, continue acting solo, you know, each side of the border. We really need to strengthen the mechanisms so we can really address all the issues, water issues, border security, of course, immigration, including environmental issues as a shared responsibility. We have a question in the back. Uh, yes, hi. Um, I wanted to comment on the issue of drug trafficking and security. It seems to me that if part of the money was spent on educating children from a young age about the dangers of drugs, that might reduce the demand for drugs and reduce this problem a little bit. Um, the drug problem has been around for decades. We've had a war on drugs for many, many years, and it's going to be with us for quite some time. Um, like in Afghanistan, you still have the poppy fields. That's a major problem, which probably isn't going to go away. So um, I think education from a young age would be uh, part of the solution. Well, without knowing it, you've uh, transported us back to 1994. Uh, almost in this very room, uh, probably over in the, uh, the old building, since this building didn't exist uh, back then, when uh, Rand uh, and uh, many of my colleagues that still work here took on that very issue. And uh, we produced analysis that looked at uh, what was the most cost-effective way 
Um, if, if you had a, one extra dollar in your policy checkbook, uh, where should you direct that dollar for reducing cocaine use? And um, no matter how you varied the assumptions, no matter how you, um, you looked at the numbers, it was clear that your highest point of leverage was exactly uh, at the consumption end and that treatment and later, um, not part of the original analysis, but later when we looked at the value of prevention programs, that that is by far the high leverage uh, point in the whole spectrum from production to consumption uh, with respect to, uh, to addressing the drug problem. So I don't know if you read that report before you came over tonight and kind of fed it as a softball, but uh, thank you for the opportunity to pitch that work. Do we have time for one more question? One or? more question. Um, I read a report recently that uh, either 90 or 95 percent of the violent crimes in Mexico go unpunished, and I wondered if you ran into research if that was more an arrest problem, prosecution problem, um, or judicial problem. You, you did touch on that. I just wondered if you have any uh, research on exactly where the main problem lies. Well, it's um, it's tough to put a uh, precise cover on it, uh, but I think the problem actually begins a little further back than you described, and that is it's not even clear how much violent crime is reported. Um, you know, there are always uh, problems of uh, underreporting violent crime, uh, a tremendous problem of underreporting violent crime in this country. If you get mugged and you don't tell the police about it, uh, unless you happen to be contacted uh, by the National Victimization Survey and mention it uh, as part of the survey, nobody's going to know it happened. Um, but, you know, where the, uh, where the bulk of the weaknesses lie, I'm not sure I can say. I mean, it's uh, it, the, the overall, the, the courts, the law enforcement, um, uh, you know, in terms of arrest patterns and willingness to, to make arrests, particularly with respect to, to some of the, the more violent trafficking organizations, and even the ability of the jails uh, to, to hold people uh, in meaningful confinement is, is in question. I mean, it varies substantially uh, around the country, and, and not every state and, and locality uh, has that kind of problem. But um, that's why I'm a very strong advocate of the systemic look and the systemic approach because you can solve the problem uh, at the arrest end, but uh, unless the courts will convict and the prisons will hold, you haven't really helped the situation very much. Of course, part of the problem is the lack of efficient prosecution and such. However, those numbers, uh, I can offer you another way to look at it. Nine of every ten of the violent homis of the homicides in drug-related or organized crime, as we classify it in Mexico, happens among or between the gangs, nine of every ten. So one belongs to a law enforcement you know, line of duty and very little casualties. Now, you have among 10,000, about 10,000 added uh, since the Calderon administration. But you have 55,000 55, detentions and prosecution and people in jail either facing trials right now as we speak. 
I don't know if another 55,000 are still fugitives or they got their way out of the system, but there are 55,000 that include heads of the mafia because this is something that I don't know if the books has it, but we need to take a look to the other numbers, the numbers that tell us how are we doing in terms of this fight, and in, including those uh, uh, historical record number on extraditions to the United States of main heads of these criminal organizations like the Arellanos and many people. So when you held uh, Arellano responsible, maybe there's going to be justice about hundreds of those deaths. You know what I mean? So it's pretty peculiar. I, I will be more than happy to facilitate some figures that we brought here that we usually use to, to this matter. And again, not in order to, to pretend that this is not happening, but to try to, to offer another look at, at the facts. Thank you. I'm sorry for the interruption. Well, um, I'm going to bring this, uh, this evening to a close. I want to thank Jack uh, for, his, uh, or for, for giving us a brief... Brief, giving us a brief summary and then allowing so much time for the, a good discussion, a good Q&A. It was really terrific. And also thank the, the Mexican consul, uh, the office for the people who are here. It's been particular for our, our, our guest, the consul general. Thank you very much for your contributions this evening. We appreciate that. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. To learn how you can attend programs at RAND, Visit us online at www.rand.org events.